You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. I'd like to very quickly announce our guest speaker for today. His name is Teen Suo, and he is an alumni of Stanford, as you can tell by reading his bio. He got his MBA here in 1999, and while he was here, he actually decided that he'd write a case study about an internet startup, and I was lucky enough to have him uh, work under my guidance, or maybe I gave him close air support or whatever it was, so that he could do a very interesting case about an internet gaming company. Prior to coming to business school, he worked for Oracle Corporation, and that's uh, where he met the founder of, of Salesforce.com. And upon graduation, he joined another s software startup and then quickly went to Salesforce, was one of their very first few employees. Teen has worked in a series of very important management roles throughout the growth of Salesforce.com. He's currently the chief strategy officer of that company. Now, how many of you have ever been to the Salesforce.com website? Quick show of hands. All right. So um, it's a company that some of you have already reached out and touched. What I'd like to do is have all of us give Teen a warm welcome. Teen, we're delighted to have you back here at Stanford. So let's hear what you have to say. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, everybody, for having me back here uh, at the farm. Uh, it's good to be back. And let me kind of um, warm up a little bit by trying to get a sense of, of, of what the crowd is like here. It's uh, kind of a a lot of people in the room. How many people are in undergrad? Okay, about half the people. And, uh, and how many people are graduate school? How many people from across the street, business school? Okay, still a few business students sneaking into these classes. It's good to see. Uh, how many people uh, have finished Stanford or are just kind of back here visiting for the class and are in the workforce? Okay, and um, how many people have worked for let's say more than three years in, in the workforce. Okay, okay, good, good. That gives me a, a good sense. Um, Tom gave a little bit of background for myself. I, I, did, jo I did join Salesforce in 1989. Uh, and at the time, we were just a handful of guys working in an empty house that Mark Benioff had rented up on, on, on Telegraph Hill. Um, we had no customers. We had uh, no product. We had a screenshot, some screenshots, but, but really no product, no revenues. Uh, we really had, had, had nothing. We had a two-page website that was, uh, that was live at the time. And in the last eight years or so, we've been able to grow this thing really from, from no customers to about 26,000 companies around the world using our service, from no users to about 560,000 of what I'll call pay, uh, subscribers, uh, which are people that pay us for use of the service. They pay us about, about $800 a, a user. That equates to about $500 million uh, a year run rate, if you will, for us. And from an employee size, we're sitting at about uh, somewhere north of 1,800 or so employees. And along the way, in the last, last eight years, uh, we've really been able to, to, to transform, if you will, enterprise software. And, and even most recently, there's a Wall Street Journal article that just came out, I think yesterday, that talked about uh, SAP and Oracle and how these large software companies are seeing, are seeing their license revenue, if you will, software revenue, decline in a time where IT spending on software is actually going up. And you know, there's a lot of questions as to why that's the case, and the Wall Street Journal credits alternative uh, products and services, such as those from Salesforce.com, as, as actually making that happen. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to talk about really how we were able to use the internet to really become this transformative force, if you will, for the enterprise software industry. Now, 
a little bit more deeper background about myself. I sort of see myself as an enterprise software guy. I've spent my whole uh, career in enterprise software. Uh, I started off building applications for specific companies, small companies, medium companies, large companies. I spent a few years at Oracle out in New York City selling enterprise software to, uh, to large companies. Uh, it was a database, it was a tools, uh, applications. Um, I went to Stanford Business School for, for a couple of years to kind of see, you know, what else was out there. And after two years, I really just realized that, you know, I'm not a management consulting guy. I'm not really an iBanker, right? I'm not a private equity guy. I'm not a consumer brand guy. I'm really an enterprise software guy, and so I went right back into, into the industry. And so a year after I left Stanford in 98, so it's 1999, I'm at a company called Crossworld Software. And uh, you know, Crossworlds was started by uh, Katrina Garnett, who had this great, great vision for a new category of applications, right? We would develop integration applications that would put together all these different applications. So in our labs, we had Siebel, we had PeopleSoft, we had SAP, we had Oracle. We had these uh, specific applications, for example, in the telco industry, like Portal and Metasov and Keenan. And we're trying to figure out how to plug all these things together and then sell an integration solution back to the marketplace. Um, but I have to say, you know, after spending about 15 months there, the, my level of disillusionment really started rising in terms of what the enterprise software industry was all about. There was, you can sort of see there was an increasing disconnect between you know, the products that we were building, right, what the sales were saying they could do, and then how customers were actually using it. And this wasn't really unique to Crossworlds. This was something that was happening across really all of enterprise software, right? Because of you know, various factors, the enterprise software had got into a mode where complexity was really what was rewarded, right? Customers had these huge expectations of what the software could do. Um, IT companies really needed to, you know, to do lots of complex stuff in order to justify large budgets. I think the software companies themselves started getting addicted to, to big deals, you know, million-dollar deals, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million. They just started getting larger and larger, which kind of feeded the complexity machine. And then even the implementers were sort of, you know, part of that process as well. They were incented for the thing to be more complex, you know, big implementations and so on and so forth. And so you're starting to get a sense that, you know, this is, this is a house of cards that was going to start to fall. In 1989, right next to that, it was the, the Internet boom was just sort of in full swing, if you will, right? The bus hadn't happened. The whole sort of post-bus cynicism that we're only really starting to come out was on, on had, you know, had not happened yet. There was no cynicism there. And so if you're a technologist and you uh, are discovering the Internet, right? And so maybe, maybe, maybe you used Mosaic for the first time, right, in 1994, 1995. Maybe, you know, use Amazon for the first time, right? And you realize, you know, there's something, there's something pretty unique here that, 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 that wasn't possible before. <laughs> maybe you're using Quokka. Right, the whole idea of being able to look at a person's heart, you know, a race driver's heartbeat or heart rate as they're going through the turns, and you could just sort of see that on the Internet. There was a lot of amazing stuff happening on the Internet. It was pretty clear that, you know, to us at least, that the Internet was this huge transformative force. It was the big transformative force in our lives at that moment. And so you're trying to look at the two things, enterprise software, house of cards, Internet, and that kind of describes, you know, what the first... I'd say a few dozen people at Salesforce.com was trying to do. We're trying to try to figure out how to use the Internet to transform this thing called enterprise software, to rebuild it from the ground up, right, and rebuild it in a way that we thought would be more, you know, geared towards the consumer and away from this, this, this complexity machine that, that really started to, uh, started to happen. And so, so a lot of times we get compared to SAP and Oracle and PeopleSoft and Siebel, and, you know, we need that comparison to happen in the marketplace, right? That, that does, uh, that is a solution that we target. But our self-image, if you will, 
is more of other companies. Our software, you know, we wake up every day and we look at how Yahoo, right, is saying, how does the internet change content, right? Or, uh, or Wikipedia, how does the internet change how we look up, we do research, or we find authoritative information about new subjects that we know nothing about, right? Or how iTunes is saying in the age of the internet, what does that mean for music? And how does that really rebuild the whole music industry? That's what we're doing. Every day when we wake up in the morning, we're saying there's this thing in the internet. How do we then figure out what that means for enterprise software? And so what I thought I'd do for this class is kind of take the, uh, the customer life cycle, the customer experience life cycle for enterprise software from the moment that you're aware of it to sort of you know, post-sales implementation, if you will. And we'll just sort of pick seven stops along the way and then give you examples of how we really took a step back and said, you know, now that there's this ubiquitous network and ubiquitous information sources, you know, what does that really mean for, uh, for enterprise software? And so to kind of start, um, we can start sort of in the awareness cycle, right? And so uh, in 1994, 1995, you know, around then, how did you find out about a new piece of enterprise software? Right? And, uh, and typically, you found out about it through things like Gartner. Right? You would subscribe to Gartner reports. There wasn't a lot of information access. How do you find out, find out about new things? You've got to go to some of these experts. And a lot of experts, you know, analyst firms, really sprouted up to talk about the 10 new products for system management, for example. Right? There was a lot of these type of, uh, these type of reports. And now, today, in the Internet, what you do is you go right to the Internet. Right? You go on the web, uh, and you try to figure out what's going on. Right? You listen to Buzz. Right, you go look at, say, what is Gizmodo saying about you know, the hottest devices, if you will? What is, uh, what is uh, John Markoff saying in the New York Times? Right? And what, are really, you know, what are the bloggers saying? And what do you kind of, or, or you say, I kind of know that I want CRM. I don't know what the products are out there. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is go to Google search box, type in CRM, look at what pops up, and really educate myself. And so it's a completely different world. And so you know, our whole marketing strategy for making awareness of what we are is about PR, is about buzz, is about building a dialogue in the marketplace, if you will, and, and, and having that conversation. So if you look at a lot of what we do from a marketing machine standpoint, it's to really build a systematic way of having a two-way dialogue with the marketplace. Okay? And so you need a lot of uh, uh, stories. You need, a lot, you, know, you need to make yourself relevant. Right? You need to look at what are the things that people care about and be part of that process, be part of the general conversation. And if you can do that, then you can really increase the level of awareness of what the company is all about. And so I'll give you a quick example. Now, it's not a Salesforce example, but there's a company called OQO that produces uh, uh, these sort of mini Windows machines. And so the first time you see it, you say, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. It's not running Windows Mobile. It's actually running Windows XP, but it's a device about this big. And I was talking to the OQO guys when, when they first started. And instead of taking out a big ad, right, instead of you know, talking to companies, they basically just sent took the five first devices off the assembly line, and they sent one to, I think, Gizmodo. They sent one to John Markoff. Right? They sent one to Steve Hamm or uh, Steve Wallstrom over at Business Week. They sent one over to uh, Walt Mossberg over at Wall Street Journal. And then the next week or two, you started seeing articles being written about it because it was kind of a cool device. Right? And so they paid no money for uh, advertising or PR, but they were able to gener generate an enormous amount of buzz and awareness for the product and really raise their level of awareness. And so that is kind of you know, the new world, if you will. Even today, we still see companies that are stuck in the 90s, so to speak. You know, they'll create a product, an enterprise software product, and they think the first thing they've got to do is go out there and educate Gartner. Right? And when you know, people are, people's behaviors are completely different now in this, um, in this age of the Internet. 
And so um, the second stop along the way, you know, so customers sort of, you know, you've done a good job of buzz, right? You, you're out there, you're talking to the bloggers, people are finding you on Google, and they're aware of your product. How then do they evaluate your product? Um, now, in the 90s, what they would do in enterprise software, right, it wasn't something you can touch and feel. You would go to an event. You would go to a seminar, right, or perhaps you would call the company directly and have them send a sales rep over and do a demonstration, right? But now, with the Internet, is available, you have a different world where information is, is, is really a, an open access to information. And so we've gone from a world of closed access to information to a world of open access to information. And you can see that with, uh, with, uh, with the consumer sites, right? You can see people investing in more content on the web really to put content out there. And, and that's a lot what we do. We put a lot of investment in our website because, look, they're finding you on Google, they're, 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 they're knowing about you, they come to your website, that is your initial impression, if you will. And so I have a, a, a saying that says, if I had an extra dollar in marketing spend, I'd rather much put, I'd, you know, I'd much rather put it on the next crazy idea for the website to kind of drive up usage of our website, create more vehicles for people to engage with us than, say, in a direct marketing campaign or, uh, or anything else, because that's where, where people are finding you. And if you look at what we've done over the last seven or eight years, we've really invested in our website. We've got you know, a big sprawling property. We've got best practices websites. We've got developer websites. We've got you know, uh, uh, app exchange websites. It's, it's, it's our way of harnessing lots and lots of other on-demand applications. Our corporate website is big and sprawling. Even you know, when I look at, uh, at Stanford, uh, one of the first things I did was to go to you know, the, the Stanford website to kind of check out the, the last few podcasts. Right? And I want to get a sense of it's, you know, it's been 10 years since I've attended one of these things. And I want to do something where it looks like I'm sort of a reject from the 90s. So I listen to the last few podcasts and say, well, what are people saying, and so on and so forth. And it's just a rich, rich website where we're capturing all this great content and, and really putting it on the web. And that's something we've done. And that's not something you see a lot of enterprise software companies do. But it is, in this stage and age of the Internet, you've got to you know, open up the information, put it out on the web, and really let people, people get access to it. And, uh, and that's a big thing. Um, one of the biggest sources of information that they can get is your product itself. One of the things that, that we went through is, uh, is a trial. And so we talked a little bit about awareness. We talked a little bit about evaluation. I want to talk about a free trial. And this is a big debate that we had. It was a short debate, but it was a big debate. Now, in the 90s, you're a company out there. You want to buy enterprise software. You kind of want to try the product. I want to try Oracle. I want to try Siebel. I want to try PeopleSoft. I want to see how it works. And you can't. You call the sales rep up, and the sales rep won't give it to you. Right? Because in this world of restricted information access, companies really try to control how you perceive their products. And so what they do, what we've all done, you know, what I used to do at Oracle, we would train the sales reps to say, if the company wants to try out your product, we'll use that as a point of resource bartering. Right? Where, look, if you want to look at the product, well, let me set it up for you. Let me understand your requirements. Right? You know, let me understand who your decision makers are. Let me understand what kind of budget you have. And then I'll bring my sales engineer here, and we'll create a scripted version of what the demonstration looks like, and you'll have a good experience. And that is exactly what our sales reps wanted. We wanted to put a free trial on the website where people can kind of sign up, play with the product, right, just like you can play with Yahoo, right? You don't have to sign, you know, you don't have to call Amazon. You just start shopping. We wanted to do that with, uh, with our product, and, and the sales reps really resisted. The sales reps resisted because they were thinking, look, if the customer really has access to the product, why would they ever call me back? And, uh, and, you know, we kind of overrode them. We put it on the, on the website, and that's how we launched. And that was really the best thing that we ever did, right, because it got people comfortable, right? It was a natural behavior. 
you're not going to buy a car sight unseen. You're going to go you know, test drive it, get comfortable with it. And that's really what we did. Now, even today, we deal with a lot of uh, other startups, other on-demand companies that really create these software applications, put them on the web, and so on and so forth. And it's a struggle talking to them about having a free trial. We'll go there and you say, look, you should really offer a free trial on your website. And we hear the same amount of resistance that you know, we went through uh, eight years ago. But we found that you know, the single best thing that we did was to invert the relationship, put the information out there, including free unfettered access to our product so that people get comfortable with it and, uh, and, and try the product. And, uh, and that's a big, big change that, that, that we did as well. Now, um, talk a little bit about product design. If, um, if you're in a mode where you allow people that are sort of kicking the tires, if you will, to look at your product, that has inverted uh, sort of the dynamics and the constraints and, and, and your design constraints, if you will, for your product. And so in the old world, if you have an environment where the first time your customer, your prospect looks at your product, it's your sales engineer going in, it's your sales rep going in, they've created a two-day bake-off, right? They know exactly what it is, they've scripted a whole demonstration. Uh, it's probably a part of a big RFP process, right? In the world where you have restricted information access, the way you manage your risk is you, you list out everything that you've got to have, right? And you call it an RFP, and you make the vendors respond to that RFP. That's a world where you really want to design for complexity, right? Because you want to get as many checkboxes off that product as possible, right? Off that RFP as possible, and you want to give your sales rep and your sales engineer the biggest set of tools. Well, in this environment, what you find if you do that is the prospect is overwhelmed, right? They log into the application. They don't really know what's going on. This thing is too complex. And the next thing you know, you know, they, 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 they move on to something else. And so when we found with the free trial is we got two points of resistance. We got a point of resistance from the sales rep that basically said, you know, I don't want the customer to have the product because I want to control that, 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 that resource, uh, access to that resource. But then you have the product developers <coughs> saying, well, our product is kind of complex. And so you, there might be an accounting product that says, well, for a customer to actually use a product, they've got to set up a chart of accounts. Right, and that's a two or three day process, and they've got to put their org chart in, and that's a two or three day process. We can't let them actually touch the product themselves. We want to send our experts in, right, and implement it for them because we don't want them to have a bad experience. And what we found was that really wasn't what it was about. People just kind of wanted to kick the tires. And so, in order to create a great trial experience, you had to do two things. One is you had to load it up with just sample dummy data, right, because they're just looking at a blank screen, right, with no chart of accounts or no sales hierarchy or you know, no customer records, no dummy, you know, they, they just get lost. The second thing we found is that the product design process really had to be more like an onion, right? You had to really present a veneer of the application that was really, really simple to use, right? Really intuitive, that you can get it or you can grok it, right, within the first 30 seconds. But you still needed all the advanced functionality, but you had to bury that and create really layers of the application. And so the analogy I draw there is, is it's very much like the way, uh, I'm a New Yorker, so I have a, a bias for the New York Times, but if you look at how the New York Times journalists write an article, it's, it's really interesting. They write, you know, the first paragraph has encapsulation of the entire article, right, within, you know, 30 words. And then the first 20% of the article, they kind of go back to the, to the top and they spell out the entire story again, but now instead of at a 30,000 foot level, let's call it a 10,000 foot level. And then, you know, at that 20% mark, the story kicks off again, and they replay the entire story again, but now it's at the full level, right? And if you ever read sort of the sports recaps, it becomes really, really interesting because they just sort of say the ninth inning first, and then they talk about, you know, they go backwards, they talk about the sixth and ninth inning, and then they talk about the entire game, and that's how the New York Times writers really train themselves to, uh, to write. And we found that that is really important in the product design process, 
right? People want to get sort of the high level first, then they want to get the next level, and then they want to get the next level. And you've got to design your product in, in, in these layers like an onion, if you will, so that you know, they get the product, but when they need something, right, they strip away the next layer, and it's just there for them. Right? And when they get more advanced, they strip away the next layer, and there's more advanced functionality for them. And you kind of walk them through that process. And that's been a critical thing. Uh, and it's very, very different from how, how enterprise software has traditionally been, been, been architected. Um, talk a little bit about the sales model. And so in, in, in the world today now, you generate some great awareness of your product. Right? People kind of find you, and the next thing you know, they're on your website. Uh, you have all this great content there. And they sign up for the free trial. And they give you their name. And, uh, and you design a great product so they have a good experience. And the next step that we really found was, well, someone has to call them. And this is kind of where the consumer experience starts to diverge a little bit than the business experience. When we started Salesforce, we thought, you know, maybe we can it actually be an environment where we don't need any sales reps. Maybe we just kind of throw the product up there. They try it out. They like it. They type in their credit card number just like they're buying a book. And the next thing you know, you know, we can collect revenue. We can kind of turn off the lights. So I'll move to Hawaii, and this thing will just be a money-making machine. And, uh, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. And what we found is in, in, in a business setting, people still need to talk to people. It's not quite like buying a book, right? There's more at stake there. You know, your job is at stake. Your corporate data is at stake, right? There's a little bit more at stake, and they really need to talk to somebody. And so very, very, you know, small percent, and I don't even know what the number is. It's pretty much negligible of our, our deals, if you will, kind of go through the system without ever any human contact. And I suspect the ones that actually do are people that have used us before and are really comfortable with it, and they simply, you know, they're, 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 they've already sort of passed the, the hurdle rate. And so what we found is you needed a sales force. And if you have a sales force, someone has to call these guys back. And so if you look at the pre-internet world, the, the, the enterprise software mindset, especially for a startup, was to hire seasoned sales guys, right? You, got, you, wanted, you wanted to hire sales guys out of Oracle. Right? And you wanted them to hire sales guys out of Oracle. And you know, they would have this, 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 this Rolodex. And uh, I happen to think the Rolodex is a myth. Every time we hire a sales rep that supposedly has a Rolodex, he comes in the organization and there's no Rolodex. But, but that's the theory. And, and so you want guys that you know, they actually say, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to extract a deal out of HP. Right? I'm going to go, I'm going to extract a deal out of B of A. And, uh, and that's the mindset. But if you've built out this whole world of the internet and people are coming to your website and they become a lead, right? You know, Someone's got to follow up. And so more important than hiring these, these high-powered sales guys, what we found was we really wanted to hire a telesales operation. Right? We really wanted to have, have somebody call that person back and say, you know, uh, did you like the product? Do you have any questions? Is there anything I can help you with? How can I help you take to the next step? And so on and so forth. And the other thing what we found was even when we had telesales reps, uh, if it was a sales rep that was responsible for closing business, they wouldn't call back the leads, right? Because they would be so focused on closing the deal at hand that they would ignore the leads. After three or four days, you know, nobody's calling, nobody's calling the leads, and you didn't strike while the iron's hot, and the next thing you know, the guy's busy, right? The guy's moved on to another part of his job, right? He's thinking about something else, right? You're not catching him while, while the issue is, 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 is top of hand. And so we've seen this evolution, really, in the industry from what I'll call, you know, a field sales model to what I'll call a, a two-tiered sales model where we've seen companies now really start hiring what we call uh, lead qualifiers, right? People that call the lead back immediately, figure out which ones are really qualified opportunities versus, you know, they're on the wrong website or, you know, they, they just have needs that, that, that you can't meet. 
and then, uh, and then they figure out which ones are qualified, and whether it's 10% that are qualified or 50% that are qualified, they take that subset that are qualified, and they pass it off to a sales organization. Uh, the other thing that we found is the sales organization now needs to be more fragmented, and so there's a part of the customer segment that you then pursue through different type of sales organization. And that kind of gets to, 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 to the next point about um, uh, segmenting and focusing. And so a lot of what we're taught um, in a traditional marketing sense is to say, um, you got STP, you know, is what, what I learned at the GSP, segment, target, position, right? You look at the marketplace, you divide it up into segments, you pick the one you want to go target, and you position your product into, into that segment. And, uh, and Jeff Moore, right, who often speaks at these events, teaches us that, which is, you know, once you cross the chasm with the, you know, the crazy early adopters, then you've got to go down the bowling alley approach, right? Pick one pin at a time, niche market. Go conquer this vertical first and then move to the next vertical. And, you know, being good students of, uh, of Jeff Moore, that's kind of how we thought. And what we found was it didn't quite work out that way, right? We basically said, look, we're going to be a small to medium-sized business, right, uh, product. We're going to go target that space because we figured that was, that's where the need is. But then you throw up a website, you do some general awareness, people come to you, and you can't exactly control who's co going to you. And so before the Internet, when you had a world where you have sales reps going out there and targeting HP and targeting Cisco and targeting B of A, that worked really well. In this new environment, you just have people come to your website, right? And you've got to react to that. You've got to call them back. You've got to ask them what they want. You've got to you know, position your product. And people would, would come to our website from all sorts of places, right? In the first week, we had people from 60 different countries come to the website. I don't even know how they found out about us, right? We had no awareness in some of these places. But they're on Google. They type a few things. And the next thing they know, they're on our website, and we have them. And so what we found pretty quickly on is that we really needed to pursue all customer segments. And so we've gone from a mode of saying, you know, let's pick and choose which customer segment to a mode that says, look, the best way to take advantage of this thing called the Internet, which is about scale, is to pursue every single thing that comes to you, right? Uh, now, you've got to be smart about that, but instead of choosing and picking and doing upfront analysis, what you then do is you let the marketplace tell you, right? Oh, China seems to be coming online. What's going on over there, right? Let's call a few people back. Let's see, you know, is our, if, it, if, it, if the product is a good fit. If it is, how do we then go pursue, pursue that marketplace? Um, we thought we were a small to medium-sized play, and we found that big companies came to us. And you know, in hindsight, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not that strange. It was a little obvious in hindsight. But departments of big companies would use our service, right? because you're, you're a five-person department, you're a 15-person department. You don't really want to deal with the corporate infrastructure. You could just sign up for this thing. And we saw all sorts of large companies. And then the, large, you know, the different departments and the large companies started banding together. And so um, Autodesk was an early co company, for example, that came to us and said, well, we got Autodesk Canada. They got like 10 users using Salesforce. We got Autodesk Europe. They've got like 50 users, 100 users. We also have this big CRM initiative, top-down driven. And we're scratching our heads saying, well, why don't we just use this, right? The users seem to love it. But we took a look at your product. You know, we signed up for it. And it's missing some few key features that we really need as a large organization, right? We need heavier customization. We need different departmental profiles, right? Because large organizations have different processes across different departments. Uh, we need integration, right, because we can't run this thing in standalone. We've got to tie it into our back office system. So by sort of throwing up a website, letting the market come to us, and then kind of looking at it and saying which ones are really coming to us, we found that we were drawn to large enterprises pretty quickly early on uh, in, in the company's existence. And so, so we wound up really building what we call an enterprise product. We wound up segmenting our product lines to sort of a professional and enterprise, 
and then we wind up really segmenting our sales force in the, turn, in the sense that we still had all the you know, small businesses that came to us and we would service them through a telesales channel. But then big companies like Autodesk, we would build out a field sales channel, a traditional field sales channel to really address those companies because we can see that the demand was there and the marketplace was there. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big risk. Um, one thing on the product that we had to do for that uh, was packaging. What we found pretty quickly on is if you're not targeting, right, if you're not sort of targeting positioning, you're sort of reversing that. You're positioning in the marketplace, drawing people to you, and then trying to figure out, you know, which fish in the barrel that you want to go shoot, if you will. Um, uh, our product became overpriced in some markets and underpriced in some markets, right? A five-person small business is scratching her head saying, you know, that's a lot of money, right, because it's, this, is kind of, this is kind of my personal income. And a large company is saying, I could put this on my credit card, right? This will just kind of sail right through. So we're leaving money on the table. And so we found out pretty quickly that we really had to have a better packaging and segment our packaging to achieve the different markets. And all the conversation at the time was, uh, was around analogies of cars. And so we were basically saying, you know, well, what do we do? You know, is this, uh, are we really doing a Toyota? And uh, I don't know the Toyota product line anymore, but like maybe there's a Toyota FX and there's a Toyota LX. We're really treating a Lexus, right? Because we want to push the branding away, have two different brands, and, and, and two different type of things. And that's exactly what we've done. We basically taken our, uh, took our product line, forked it in 2002 to what we call professional enterprise, $65, $125, and then we've kept on doing that. We've got a team edition at the at this end. We got an unlimited edition. We've got a personal edition. We've got all these different editions that really hit different price points, right? And the analogy there to continue the car analogy is, you know, we've got our three series. Right? We've got our 5 Series, we've got our Mini Cooper, right? and we were looking at it and saying, well, you know, the 5 Series is doing really well, the 7 Series is doing well, but we can really squeeze in the 6 Series based on, on the customer demand that we're seeing. Or the 7 Series is doing too well, maybe there's an 8 Series that needs to come out right? because there's, there's, there's more room at the high end of the demand. And that's, uh, that's exactly how we think to kind of address, address that market. Again, very, very different from, uh, from enterprise software. Um, Two more sort of quick lessons on, along the way, and so we've sort of taken through the customer lifecycle, uh, awareness, evaluation, right? What does that mean for product design? What does that mean for your sales channel, if you will? Uh, what we found was the role of the events have changed, and so the role of events, right? The software industry is heavy into events, lots of seminars to bring people together. In the 90s, the events played a role early on in the process because that was the only vehicle for them to engage with you, right? They didn't, weren't ready to call the sales rep yet. There's no such thing as the web to kind of go to, right? No website to collect information. Uh, and so they would go to an event. They would sit in you know, a room like this, kind of listen to it, look at the temp dem look at a demo, find other people to talk to, and so on and so forth. We found the role of the event became shifted to what I'll call like the Apple Store. And so we do a lot of events. We do a lot of events worldwide. We do physical events. What we found was, you know, people really liked the product. They really, you know, they really, the online experience was fantastic. But at the end of the day, they wanted a physical event. They wanted to see the product. They wanted to have a face-to-face -face, right, with somebody, not just a telephone conversation. They wanted to talk to other customers. And so they wanted what, what, what the, what the function that the Apple Store fills, right, where you can kind of buy an Apple, but at the end of the day, it's kind of nice to walk into the Apple Store to kind of play with it. And I've got my own story. I mean, when I wanted to buy a new computer, this was three or four years ago, I, I just swear I wouldn't buy a Dell. Right? Everybody's got Dells. I use a Dell at work. It was uncool. I didn't want a Dell. And so what was I going to buy? And so, you know, I go online, right, like everybody else. I'm going to PC Week. I'm going to PC World, right? This alien computer looks pretty good. But 
you know, it's kind of expensive and it's too cool, right? You got to be like a hardcore gamer. I'm not a hardcore gamer anymore, right? You know, I'm, I'm kind of too old for that stuff. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I, I just, you know, the Sony Vio looks pretty good. You know, it's got all this multimedia stuff. It's super quiet. It's like a sleek black box. You know, it kind of looked good on my, on, on my desk. But I sat on it. I sat on it for three or four weeks. And what I wound up doing is I wound up driving down to Palo Alto, right, right here, and, uh, and going to the Sony Style Store and kind of looking at it. Right? And then what I did was I went back online and bought it from Amazon to save, uh, to save on the tax. <laughs> but, uh, but that was okay, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, Sony really did, Sony did a sale. And so what we found is there's still a human element involved in, in a lot of decision making. And, and that's, you know, the Apple store has been a huge success for Apple. And what we find is our event is kind of like that. And, uh, and so my dream is to have like a permanent, you know, location somewhere on Times Square where you can just kind of go in and, and play with Salesforce. And uh, I don't know if it's cost effective for us, but that would be uh, a 24-hour place, just like the Apple Store in, uh, in Times Square. Um, so that's kind of that's what we found. Um, the last thing to, to kind of talk about is sort of the post-sales experience. And we did this, uh, we did this experiment in, in 2000. We were about to launch the product. It would have a price. So before that, it was just you know, a free beta. And we had all these leads in the, in, in the pipeline, if you will. We had people that came to our website. right? They would just find us. And, uh, and, you know, our sales reps are calling on them. We said, look, this is what we'll do. We're about to start charging for it. But if you sign up for today, we'll give it to you for six months, right, for free. And, of course, they said, okay, that sounds like a no-brainer. Why don't you sign me up? And we signed up. We cleared out the pipeline. We added about 200 customers to, uh, to the mix, right? Not, you know, not paying, but 200 customers. And we watched them because what happened was the sales guys would move on and they would look at the next prospect, the next deal, especially with these free guys that are you know, not generating commissions for them for six months. They would focus on the, these other things. And so, you know, again, you know, no, no surprise, um, we're a website, so we can kind of watch these things. Right? And so we kind of watched what the adoption level was like, and it was anemic. And so I don't remember the exact percentages, but you know, it's probably order of magnitude around 10% of the companies actually used it. And, uh, and at the six months, you kind of know what happened. That 10% of, of the 200 users, or 200 customers, actually wanted to buying the service, and the other 90% just kind of went away, right? And, uh, and so that is, uh, was, a, was a clear lesson that said, you know, with this model, it's a little different because in, in the software industry, in the 90s, we're trained to say, you know, you close a deal, you book a commission, you drop off a CD, and that's pretty much it, right? I mean, there's some maintenance revenue and so on and so forth, but it's up to the customer at that point. And so then at that point, you say, okay, well, let me sell you some post-sale service. Let me introduce you to Accenture, right? Let me introduce you to our consulting organization, right? Well, you're not really using the application, but you're kind of stuck with it. It's just shelfware, so why don't we put together a training class for you, right? That's kind of the mindset of the time. But the mindset was completely different, right? Because they would just say, well, you know, I'm just going to turn off the service, you know, thanks, but I'm not going to really, really continue it. And if you look at the heavy cost of sales to kind of acquire that customer, if they were to stick around for a month or two, right, then, then, then it does not become a profitable proposition. And so the whole post-sales environment has been critical for us. And we have parts of our organization that we've created, right, with titles like customer success manager and so on and so forth, right. Uh, we have concepts like uh, adoption ladders that just don't exist in the software industry because we really need to drive usage of the application. And so we have a set of metrics that we track per customer, and we have eight years of history to say, well, what are really the right sort of metrics where you can kind of tell that a customer's going to stick around, right? And you can kind of tell when, well, they're really not going to renew at their point of renewal, whether it's one month or one year, whatever it happens to be. And so the whole post-sales model becomes even more critical. And if you run the numbers, right, if you kind of just model out this thing on an Excel spreadsheet and you plug in a variable called attrition, 
which is you know what percent of your subscriber base leaves you, right, every single month, and then you also plug in you know a factor for growth, right, which in the software industry tends to be more around salespeople, right? How many salespeople are going to have, and how much bookings they're going to close, and so on and so forth. You find that uh, manipulating the attrition number is a much much higher, right? You know what's the uh, what's the term? Sort of a sensitivity, if you will, to uh, to the growth number, right? And it's just a huge difference whether your attrition is one percent a month versus say five percent a month, right? Five percent times twelve <coughs> is sixty percent. Two thirds of your customer base is leaving you every year, and you know then you just can't you just can't run fast enough to, to kind of keep up with it. And so you see us, and a lot of what that, that is a lot of what we do. We have a whole website for best practices, and we do a lot of things that drive people to best practices, and we drive customers you know, to kind of talk to each other, and we really try to get them to the point where they're successful with the application. Because in an organizational setting, once you're successful rolling out an application, people are using it, right? the organization has wrapped its processes around it, then it becomes harder to unplug. Right? Then it becomes a self-sustaining engine. And, um, if you've worked in an organization for a while, you know that there are processes in the organization that seem to live on forever, right? Because you can't seem to do anything about it, and um, and, and so it is with applications, right? Once, once you've got an organization's processes wrapped around it, uh, you pretty much have a, a good point of sustainability. But you got to get that company to 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 that level, and uh, that's really it. That's what I kind of wanted to to do to sort of summarize it: uh, a different way of generating awareness, right? A different way of putting information out there, letting companies evaluate your product. Uh, giving them access, uh, unfettered access to your product and making sure that's a great experience, which means great product design and onion style product design, if you will, right? Creating a sales model that calls them back, right? That reacts to this inbound model, if you will, versus the old outbound model, right? Really pursuing, pursuing all customers, doing uh, a strong segmentation, um, creating events to allow customers and prospects and the community, if you will, to come together, and then really focusing on post sales. Lots of lessons, but I, I just kind of boiled up to, to those seven lessons, if you will, that we learned in, uh, in, in how to transform this enterprise software. And with that, what I'd like to do is just kind of open up to, to questions and answers. <laughs> Who wants to be first? So did you decide to keep the six-month trial or increase the adoption rate or just Yeah, so um, we started off with a 12-month trial. Uh, so. Would, I, would we do it over again? We think we'd probably do it over again. A little bit of that was the dot-com boom, revenues didn't matter, you know, land grab. That was the mindset of the time. Um, we started with the 12-month trial. We, we also had uh, five users free for, uh, for, uh, for the first year. We went down to six months. We went down to three months. We went down to 30 days. We went up to 30, you know, three months, and we settled on 30 days. And 30 days seems, seems, seems to work well for us. Sure. For the, uh, for the blogging. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned about the core sales is quite important in order to build that sustainable business. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you use the metrics to sort of focus your sales force mm -hmm. so that you get the best bang and rather than spend the resources on coming that going to go away? Sure. So, so the question is, uh, uh, do we use metrics to drive sales organizations in this new model? And absolutely, that's one of the greatest benefits of it. Uh, in the old model, right, you, you spend X amount of money pr producing a product. It's got to have a certain level of complexity, right? And so you invest a lot more efforts up front to create that product. And then you hire sales reps. And you're kind of hoping that they can bring in a million dollars, right? I mean, we had quarters uh, across worlds where 
you know, we're flying high because we just brought in $10 million and we had quarters where we had $0. And, and that creates a really hard environment to, to manage. Uh, contrast that, there's another company that, uh, that um, you know, had the software model. They wanted to move to this you know, on-demand model, if you will. And they decided to, to just run a test. They hired no sales reps. And they basically said, look, well, we'll build a product. We'll ha have a website. We'll spend some money on internet search. So in total, they spent about $90,000. They spent about four months to kind of walk through the cycle. I think the CEO or somebody you know, called every customer up. And within four months, they had a, a perfect picture of what all the metrics were like. Right? How many people would come to their website? How many coming from search engine marketing? What are the qualification rates? What are the close rates? What are the average deal sizes? And they could model out their entire business with, you know, with a lot of certainty. And then you could start tweaking these numbers and try to get them better and better, but at least you have a baseline to, 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 to work with. And so what we found is it's, it's, it's become a much, much more predictable model of how to build a sales organization. It's critical to, um, to, 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 to have a metrics-based way of think, like, thinking about it. Yeah? Can you talk a little about App Exchange and if you view it as an extension of, of where you began from or if you think it's really going to sure. uh, change your organization? Yeah, so App Exchange. Um, um, I'll give you two answers to App Exchange. So the question is, uh, is App Exchange going to change the organization? How do we kind of think about it? Um, we have a saying in, in the company we use a lot that says strategy dict tactics dictate strategy, right? You've got to be strategic in what you do, but there's some sort of tactic typically that, that, that drives it. What are you trying to accomplish? What is the marketplace telling you? Uh, you, you look at App Exchange, and a lot of people think that App Exchange was this great strategy. It's been a huge transformative force for the company. It's really repositioned the company in, in many, many ways. We used to go to the marketplace and we would say we're on-demand CRM, which is kind of interesting. Now we go to the marketplace and say we're harnessing the energy of the, on, the entire on-demand marketplace. Look at that. There's 500 applications you can find on App Exchange, and it's, it's greatly increased our relevancy in the marketplace, right, which allows us to continue to have this, this conversation, if you will. Um, but App Exchange was a reaction. App Exchange was a reaction to the fact that uh, at the time uh, we had a competitor called Siebel that came out with a Siebel on demand product. We knew that our core competency or technology differentiator that we can figure out that we knew Siebel would not be able to figure out given the fact that they were, you know, they were looking at their legacy code and basing it off of that was this whole customization concept, right? The ability to say, look, we ship you with accounts and contacts and opportunities, right? What makes up a core CRM application, but you can do whatever you want. You can create tabs. You can create new tables, you can create new fields, and that was something that was really, really hard to do. And, uh, and we had, you know, it took us years to kind of figure it out. But we couldn't get any customers to use it. Uh, you know, the core leading edge guys would use it, but we, we couldn't cross the chasm, if you will, into, uh, into the mainstream. And in fact, I had a, a sales call with a customer where they were already using our, our custom objects, custom tabs capability, right? And um, it was the meeting with the president, right? So high up in the organization, you know, maybe not, in the, not entrenched in all the details. And we were trying to sell him a new product, and he said, well, you don't have this, 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 this object. You don't have this thing called entitlements. And we said, well, we could just build it for you. In fact, you're already doing it. You know, why don't you do some more? And he basically said, no, I don't really want to customize the application because Larry Ellis and everybody else in the industry had taught the industry not to customize. Larry Ellis had basically said, if you customize my application, you can't move on to you know, Oracle 10, Oracle 11. And everybody was running away from customization. And so we're scratching our head, and we're saying, well, you know, Fred, what if... Uh, what if we just put it on a website and you click on it and we install it for you instead? And from a technology standpoint, it was the exact same thing, right? It didn't matter if a person typed it in or we just kind of you know, run a script and install it. And Fred said, I would buy it today. And that was sort of the, you know, one, one example where it just clicked in our head that said, why don't we create a website 
loaded up with pre-built applications, instead of telling people to go build or customize a recruiting application, we would just say recruiting, you click on it, and you install it. And things just took off after there, right? People really started saying that was a breakthrough that says customization, installation, completely different mindsets, even though technology-wise it was the same thing. Now, once we did that, what we found was it was a great platform, too, for partners and other people to, 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 to really work with us, and, uh, and we really fueled that. But the genesis of that whole idea was just to try to get customers to do something that was pretty strategic to us. So the question is, um, with the internet, aren't barriers are to, to entry very fairly low? And isn't it easier for competitors to come copy us? Um, so a couple answers. Um, one is, we don't believe the barriers to entry are really low. Uh, you know, we spent somewhere between 50 to $100 million in our data center. Uh, our data center now right, passes um, the test the auditing, the compliance for companies like Merrill Lynch and really the largest company, Symantec, a security company that does audits, uh, uses, uh, uses our service. And so that's not something that's easy to reproduce. It's, it's expensive to, to reproduce. We have a whole business model where I kind of touched on it, but you, know, you kind of have to be in, in the business model and understand all the details of how to put that together. And that's as important to us as a technology model if you just were to throw up a website but didn't fine tune your sales force and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, you wouldn't, you know, have the same sort of success rates. Um, but the other point that, uh, that we try to do is we try to basically say, look, that, that is true. It is true that we're, we're in a mode where, you know, for the first five or six years of the company, we're like the only ones out there talking about on-demand. Now the marketplace is saying we want on-demand, and all these other companies are starting to come about, right? And what are we going to do about that, right? We don't want to be, we don't want to be IBM. We don't want to create the PC. Fast forward 15 years, we're selling our PC division to the Chinese, right? You know, that, that doesn't make any sense. And that's not, that's not what we want. We want to have a relevant place in, in this marketplace that, that we created. And we said, look, if we, and we said, where are our growth rates? Do we then compete with everybody? Do we then come out with an, our own ERP module? Do we come out with an HR module, right, and, and really start to compete with everybody? And we said, well, that, that doesn't really make any sense, too, because we don't have the resources to do that, and we don't have the expertise. And uh, so we said our core asset, if you will, to combining those two concepts, is our technology. We have spent $50 million on our platform and our data center. We have spent all this great technology underneath our applications, right, for workflow and reporting and security, all this great stuff that you need. Why not open it up and give it to the marketplace and, if you will, you know, create a value proposition where if you're an on-demand company out there, you're saying, hey, this sounds pretty good. You know, I'm better off cooperating with these guys and, uh, and, and, and using them to lower my costs and increase my reach versus uh, competing with them. And that's proved to be you know, a much stronger position for us and a much more relevant position for us. Yeah. So, um, you're saying like your core asset being your technology. What are you guys doing to compete with the Googles and the Oracles as far as acquiring talent if and you need to keep continuously updating technology? And especially as talent gets more and more short, what are you guys doing? To sure. So what are we doing to acquire talent? Um, well, I'm here. So if anybody wants to uh, <laughs> give me a resume, I'd be glad to take it afterwards. Um, 
uh, acquiring talent is probably the most critical thing to us right now, right? We're, we're, we're in a growth mode right now where, you know, the market's huge and, uh, and we need to acquire, you know, a lot of talent. Um, we also need to retain talent. And so uh, we have to put together the processes to kind of make people successful, right, and make them engage within an organization and, uh, and, and to have them stay with us. And we actually hired Clara from Google because we thought that, um, uh, you know, Google, we did a better job with Google than, than in terms of retaining people. Um, and so, so you really just have to focus on it. You know, you really have to, to attract people. You have to create a great environment for them to work in. Uh, you have to bring them in. And you have to give them great projects and, and, and great challenges. Um, sometimes I get the question in terms of, well, you're a public company now, so isn't it more attractive for me financially to join a pre-public company than, uh, than a public company? But uh, in the big picture, we're, we're, we're just getting started. I joined Oracle when it was a public company, and it was a billion dollars, and it grew to $8 billion in the time I was there, and the stock grew like 10x, if you will, during, during that time. And so you know, we think of ourselves as really, really just getting started. We're at 500,000 or so subscribers. We want to hit a million, two million, five million, ten million, uh, and you know, in that course, growing from let's call it 2,000 employees to 10,000 employees, there's going to be a lot of great growth opportunities and great projects. Yeah. What keeps you up at night? What keeps up? What keeps us up at night? Um, at different phases of the company, you know, different things keep you up at night. Uh, I think what keeps us up at night now is more uh, opportunity-based than, say, fear-based. Right? You always have to be paranoid. You always have to look for the next threat and so on and so forth. But we've got a pretty, pretty, pretty unique opportunity. We've got an app exchange vision, really, that allows us to transform ourselves into you know, a niche CRM solution, into a platform solution that powers you know, all the on-demand applications inside a company, but, and, and we've got a big, big marketplace that, uh, that we have to pursue. So what keeps us up at night is how do we maintain the growth? How do we not stumble? How do we be smart about the decisions we make? How do we prioritize all these different opportunities that we have? And, and it's really just about managing the growth, being as efficient as possible, and, uh, and, and really continuing on the path that we're on. Right? We're, 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 we're running a marathon, and the last thing we want to do, we're in the pole position, the last thing we want to do is, you know, trip and stumble on the 15th mile, right, and, and, and not get to the finish line. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, when you guys are looking for talent, I'm curious, sort of, uh, how do you got, you know, Google and other companies like that, they need talent in lots of areas, but they seem to really emphasize engineering talent. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular um, <coughs> set of people that you are, you know, to drive a lot of your Sure. Sure. Um, there's a saying that we have that, that comes from Oracle, which is um, you either build a product or you sell the product. And uh, we, we do have that enterprise software. In enterprise software, you do need a distribution arm. And so those are the two big areas. Now, you know, there's a lot of supporting people in that process as well, right? There's a lot of marketing people. There's a lot of uh, administrators. Uh, our recruiting department is, is, is fairly large as well. Um, um, but, you know, we need engineering talent where, where we are trying to innovate. We're trying to, if you kind of take a step back, we're just basically taking, um, trying to redefine what information management is, right? Where in the 90s it was about using a relational database, installing it, right? Putting your information in it, building applications on top of it. In the world of the Internet, we're basically saying, you know, how do you use the Internet for that? Right? Whatever information it happens to be, customer information, uh, personnel information, sales information, 
supply chain information, right, to-do lists, calendars, how do we really provide a generic information utility to manage all information? And that is hard. We've done a lot of stuff in, in, in our engineering layer that, uh, that we're pretty proud of that we can kind of you know, get into. Um, but we need strong engineers that can really help do a lot of major breakthroughs that we'll, we'll need in the next few years. Any other questions? Great. Well, All thanks right. for having me. On behalf of uh, BASIS and STVP and everybody in the audience, we'd like to thank Mr. Sewell for joining us today. Thanks.